This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. Friday, June 24th, 2022 will forever live in the history of the United States Supreme Court and this country for all the wrong reasons. When the court overturned its own precedents and ruled that access to abortion is not a right guaranteed by the Constitution, five justices did something that the Supreme Court has rarely done, rolled back an existing guarantee of liberty. You would be hard-pressed to find an example of the court interpreting the Constitution more strictly than it had previously on an issue of this magnitude. For 49 years, generations of Americans have come to rely on the recognition that the right to abortion is guaranteed. That has suddenly been ripped away by the court's ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. The court has destabilized reproductive health care around the country, and politicians in states where the culture is hostile to abortion are rushing in to take advantage. In this emergency episode of Speaking Freely, we hear from ACLU PA Deputy Legal Director Sarah Rose and Senior Policy Advocate Julie Zapes. Sarah and Julie have been part of our team that has been responding to the Dobbs decision. In this conversation, we specifically discuss the impacts of the court's ruling in Pennsylvania on patients and providers, on the political landscape, and in the courts. Well, Sarah and Julie, thanks both uh, for being here. These are uh, this is obviously a conversation we didn't want to have, but here we are having it. And Sarah, I want to start with you. I do want to talk about some of the basics of the law here because I think maybe that there's a lot of misunderstanding. Um, and so, can you first lay out the basic legal construct of why the court in Roe established abortion as a constitutional right. It's true that abortion is not explicitly named in the Constitution, but there are many things that we recognize as rights that are not written into the Constitution. So what what's in the Constitution that establishes these rights? So the Supreme Court has interpreted the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was uh, adopted in 1868, um, to include what's called a substantive due process clause. And that clause protects rights that are so fundamental to our notion of liberty that the government cannot interfere with them without a very strong justification. So these are rights that are not enumerated in the Bill of Rights, but are rooted in tradition or in principles that um, recognize the importance of individual liberty and autonomy. Um, and so these include rights like the right to the parents' right to the care and, care and control and custody of their children. Um, it includes the right to vote. Um, it includes the right to pretrial liberty. Um, also includes the right to use contraception, the right to same-sex marriage. Um, and until Friday, it included the right to abortion. And my understanding as a non-lawyer, but something I just learned about recently, is that the founders anticipated this when they were drafting the Bill of Rights with the Ninth Amendment as well. You mentioned that phrase, enumerated rights, and they actually had a debate over things that weren't named in the Constitution. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, you know, we certainly have not interpreted the Constitution so literally that it only includes what the Constitution says or even what the framers thought at the time. 
you know, it's been interpreted more as a living document because it's, you know, it, it can't cover every single situation that would come up. And so the courts have traditionally interpreted it and applied it to new situations, right? We didn't have cars when the constitution was written. We certainly didn't have the internet, but the court's been able to apply the bill of rights to those new scenarios and come up with um, doctrines that protect individual rights in a different context. So, Sarah, with that in mind, give us the summary then of what the court did in Dobbs. Why is the court rejecting this idea of abortion as an unenumerated right? So, according to the majority opinion, um, the justices essentially looked back in time to 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted and looked to see whether um, abortion was protected in 1868, whether there was any notion that abortion was a fundamental right in 1868, um, they concluded that it was not considered a fundamental right in 1868. Um, and so they decided that there was no reason to believe that the 14th Amendment protects the right to terminate a pregnancy. I want to come back to the legal ripple effects here. You've mentioned a number of rights that are not in the Constitution, Sarah, but I want to turn to Julie F now. Julie, I, I, I want to ask you a bit about the PA-specific implications here. That's why we're doing this emergency podcast. There's lots of chatter out there about Dobbs and living in a post-Roe world, but I specifically wanted to zero in on Pennsylvania. First of all, what is the landscape of abortion access in Pennsylvania? And in at least the next few months, how is access going to be impacted by the court's decision? Thanks, Andy. So in Pennsylvania, we have for decades had a number of restrictions on abortion access. Uh, the first thing to know, I guess, is that uh, abortion is still legal here in Pennsylvania right now. We want to make sure that we send that message loud and clear because we know uh, that there's often confusion among patients when abortion restrictions are enacted and certainly when something this big hits the news around abortion care. So abortion is still legal in Pennsylvania. However, for decades, um, patients and providers have been up against a number of restrictions on care that include uh, state scripted counseling that doctors are required to uh, read to their patients that actively discourages seeking abortion. After receiving that state scripted counseling, patients have to wait 24 hours uh, for their procedure. Minors are required to get the consent of one parent um, or go through a process in court called a judicial bypass in order to get care. Um, and I think the biggest barrier for most patients is that Medicaid is prohibited from covering abortion care in Pennsylvania. It covers all other aspects of pregnancy care. If you were carrying a pregnancy to term, if you had a miscarriage, if you had a stillbirth, but if you decide to end your pregnancy um, and you go to the clinic as someone who's insured through Medicaid, they are gonna be telling you, here's what you need to pay out of pocket. And of course, that's a huge burden because by definition, folks who are insured through Medicaid are low income. Uh, in terms of clinics in Pennsylvania, we have uh, just 17 clinics in the state, and they are largely concentrated in the southeast part of the state. So west of Harrisburg, you only have two clinics. Uh, of those 17 clinics, five of them only provide medication abortion. Um, they don't provide the uh, abortion procedure that we commonly think of. And 
So those two clinics that are uh, in the western part of the state in Pittsburgh are uh, going to be bearing a, an enormous brunt as folks from other states are traveling to Pennsylvania to seek care. Yeah, I want to ask you about that as well. We are we have some states on our border that are certainly going to restrict or even ban abortion altogether. Um, so can you say a little more about that? How does what happens in other states around abortion restrictions impact Pennsylvania? So already Ohio's six-week abortion ban has taken effect. Uh, so once cardiac activity is detected, uh, you can no longer... Uh, seek abortion care in Ohio, and that's generally around six weeks gestation when many people don't even know that they're pregnant. Uh, So already uh, clinics in Western Pennsylvania are hearing from uh, patients in Ohio who need to cross the border to seek care. Uh, We also expect that West Virginia will move to restrict or ban abortion. And for many folks in West Virginia, those Pittsburgh clinics will be their nearest clinics. Um, And even for a small slice of folks in Kentucky and Michigan, mapping the drive to the nearest clinic, you wind up in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge number of people of reproductive age uh, who could find themselves pregnant, who if they pull out a map to see where where they can get to by car, are going to be looking at coming to Pittsburgh for care. Uh, So that's enormously complicated for a number of reasons. 60% of people who seek abortion care are already parents. So they're now trying to figure out what to do with their kids while they cross state lines to get care. Uh, They are going to be thinking about taking time off work. They're thinking about money for gas, which we know is something that's hitting everybody hard right now. Uh, They're going to be thinking about lodging because if they're driving, you know, three or four hours to get to a clinic, Uh, They may need to stay overnight the night before if they have an early morning appointment, for instance. Um, Also, later in pregnancy, uh, it's a two-day procedure, and so those folks will definitely need to stay one, if not two nights, uh, away from home. Uh, So it's very complicated for folks traveling from out of state, and it's putting pressure on our healthcare system in Pennsylvania. So even if you live in Pittsburgh, you know, right next door to a clinic and you don't think your access to care has changed, it may take longer to get an appointment because all of a sudden they are serving patients who never would have come in their doors before. And Julie, we speak often of who is most impacted by limitations to abortion access, even before Dobbs, Black people, Indigenous people, members of the LGBTQ and T community, people living in poverty, which you've alluded to talking about Medicaid, and also rural Pennsylvanians. Can you say a little bit more about why that is? Why do these folks in particular have such high hurdles to accessing abortion care? I think part of it is about these folks' access to our healthcare system in general, right? Uh, we know there are enormous um, disparities in access to healthcare among people of color, among poor people, among people living in rural areas, and also LGBTQNT folks. Uh, so this is a stigmatized type of healthcare, abortion care, and it's just adding an additional layer on top of um, some of the barriers that folks already face. Uh, We know that um, folks of color are more likely to uh, be insured through Medicaid uh, disproportionately. So the 
barriers that fall on uh, people who are insured through Medicaid are falling disproportionately on people of color, particularly black folks in this country, in this state. Um, and then I mentioned there are 17 clinics in Pennsylvania that are largely concentrated in the Southeast. So if you're living in a rural part of the state, you may have already been three hours from the nearest clinic anyway, um, even before this decision came down. Um, and you know, maybe you lived in a part of the state where your nearest clinic was in Cleveland, and now that clinic is effectively unable to serve you if um, you're seeking an abortion after six weeks gestation. So um, there's, I, I think, a lot of complicated interlocking reasons why uh, folks are disproportionately impacted. But I do think um, lawmakers who are looking to restrict abortion know who this is falling hardest on and move ahead with these restrictions regardless. Even if you go back to 1976, when the federal Hyde Amendment was enacted, um, the Henry Hyde, who it's named after, said, I would love to prevent everybody from accessing abortion, but since I can't, I will uh, restrict Medicaid recipients from using uh, federal funds to pay for abortion care. And so it, it, low-income folks, um, disproportionately people of color, were targeted right from the start uh, with these restrictions. This was just three years after Roe was enacted. Um, and we know that well-off folks with access to resources are always going to find a way to get abortion care. Uh, and it's folks who are living on the margins for any reason who are going to be most impacted by these bans and restrictions. Sarah, I want to come back to the legal ripple effects here. In the majority opinion, Alito talks about rights that are part of the country's, quote, history and traditions. And of course, he doesn't consider abortion one of those despite 49 years of constitutional protections. Alito also insists that this reasoning is limited to abortion, but Clarence Thomas's concurrence says that other established rights should be re-examined, including marriage equality for gay couples, the right to privacy in one's own bedroom, and the right to contraception. In the months leading up to this decision, we actually got some press requests about this very topic, and we hesitated to delve into this because we didn't want it to further ramp up people's anxiety, but the harsh reality is right in front of us. Do we have to worry that abortion was just one domino in a line of rights that the court could topple? Absolutely. We do have to worry about that. Um, there is just no principled way to distinguish the right to abortion from the other rights that have been um, considered in the same vein, which would include the right to contraception, the right to same-sex marriage, the right to um, you know, sexual intimacy in this country. Um, and, you know, the, the Alito for the majority tries to distinguish it, but the only thing he comes up with is that the government has um, an interest in protecting fetal life. But there's nothing in the Constitution that makes fetal, the government's interest in fetal life more important than the government's interest in procreative sex or the government's interest in heterosexual marriage. Um, so that is, there, so there's just no principled way to distinguish this case from, you know, the, the other cases that the courts decided um, under the same theory. Um, I think the dissent uh, used a description of a Jenga tower, right? You play the game Jenga and you have all these blocks that sort of are interlocking. And once you remove the roadblock and the Casey block, the entire tower collapses and there's no way to maintain the other rights that have been recognized under the same theory. 
So we're talking about PA, Pennsylvania-specific issues and impact here. Sarah, can you talk a bit about the role of state constitutions on this issue? Pennsylvania's constitution has all of the rights that Roe was based on and more, and there is currently a case before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that could establish a state constitutional right to abortion. Yeah, so you know there are a handful of other states whose constitutions have already been held to protect the right to abortion, and Pennsylvania has an equal rights amendment. Um, you know, that protects uh, people from sex discrimination. And, um, and I think there's a really good argument that Pennsylvania's Equal Rights Amendment does protect the right to abortion um, in this state. Um, but there's a, not very much case law interpreting that Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and as you mentioned, Andy, there is a case in front of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court um, about the, um, it's not specifically about the right to abortion because it was filed back in 2019 when, Roe is still the law of the land, um, but uh, it involves whether um, the Equal Rights Amendment requires the state to provide Medicaid funding for abortion. Um, but that's certainly, and I think all eyes are on that case to see what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court does and to see whether the court, you know, specifically recognizes their right to abortion under the Equal Rights Amendment or suggests that in a future case, it will decide that there is a right to abortion under the Equal Rights Amendment. So we'll have to see. And Julie, with that in mind, this seems like a good place to talk about politics and building political power. The anti-abortion crowd took a methodical, decades-long approach to get here that took political savvy, much to our chagrin. And in reaction to Dobbs, Democratic elected officials all are saying vote this year. But for a lot of folks, understandably, that feels very unsatisfying. We've been voting and here we are. Can you talk first about the 2022 electoral landscape and then say a bit about the idea of building political power? I'm not against Democrats telling people to vote, but this feels like a vote and kind of moment. I would definitely agree, Andy, that in this situation, as in many situations, voting is necessary but not sufficient. We are walking into a really critical election here in Pennsylvania in 2022. Um, at the top of the ticket, uh, we have a gubernatorial race that could very well decide whether abortion remains legal in Pennsylvania come next year. So right now, uh, the state house and the state Senate both have anti-choice majorities. And when they have in the last seven and a half years passed legislation to restrict abortion, the governor has vetoed that legislation. So uh, with Governor Wolf terming out uh, at the uh, beginning of 2023, uh, we have a race between one candidate who staked out a very clear uh, pro-choice position, Josh Shapiro, and another candidate, Doug Mastriano, who is the prime sponsor of a six-week abortion ban in the state legislature. Uh, so very different positions on abortion right there at the top of the ticket, and um, that veto may very well be all that stands between Pennsylvania and uh, outright abortion bans uh, next year. I think we also need to hold uh, folks down ballot accountable for their position on, a, on abortion access. Um, this is not a Republicans versus Democrats issue. Um, 
in Pennsylvania uh, hasn't been for decades and decades. Uh, we have a number of anti-choice Democrats uh, still in the state house, although their numbers are dwindling. And uh, historically, we've had some pro-choice Republicans, um, but certainly um, we need to hold our elected officials accountable uh, to be bold on this issue. We have um, many in the state legislature who would say, oh yes, I, I, I support abortion rights, um, but you would be hard pressed to hear them talking about it or talking about abortion as a public good, as a medical procedure that one in four women will undergo before the age of 45, just as sort of a, a commonplace thing that happens in our communities. And I think that we've really suffered the political consequences as a result of folks who say they're on our side, not really embracing um, what that might mean um, and being as bold and vocal about the importance of abortion to gender equality in this country, to uh, people's basic health, right? Um, being able to make those choices regardless of the reason um, in order to to move forward in their lives in a whole lot of different ways. And these these candidates, legislative and gubernatorial, are going to be out there on the campaign trail throughout the summer and the fall. You know, they're going to be coming to your door. Um, you may see them at forums and events. Pepper them with questions. You know, pepper them on social media. You know, uh, get those letters to the editor into your local paper. I mean, each and every place where you can get that message out, whether it's to their face or through some kind of uh, media format, use it um, to make sure that we're shoring them up. And, you know, there, this is going to, this is a long-term fight. And I thinking back to what Sarah was talking about with the other rights that could be in jeopardy. I think that this abortion is front and center, of course, right now. Um, but this idea of building political power is going to be really important for all of these other issues that we're talking about as well. Definitely. One of the other issues that I work on um, here is LGBTQ and T rights. And so there's obviously such a, a close connection here um, between abortion access and a whole variety of rights for LGBTQ and T folks in our state. It's about bodily autonomy. It's about the freedom to make decisions about your body, about your family. Um, and certainly the same folks who are very vocal anti-abortion opponents are um, also strongly anti-LGBTQ and T, um, anti-marriage, anti-trans um, health, uh, just across the board, uh, you see this same set of opponents on both of these issues. And sometimes I think our movements have not done as good of a job as we could as in sort of bridging those gaps and developing that narrative around um, we need and deserve the freedom to build families in a way that's right for us, whether that's about, um, you know, marrying who we love, whether that's about having a child or not having a child, um, that this is all very much interconnected. And certainly the conversation about bodily autonomy and the freedom to, to make decisions about your own body is one where you see huge intersections um, thinking about transgender folks' uh, right to access trans-affirming healthcare um, and uh, folks' rights to access abortion care. Um, sometimes 
I'm even surprised at how long it takes us to make those connections, right? So I think back to 2017 when our state legislature um, tried to amend a standard chip reauthorization bill um, to prevent chip from covering trans-related health care. Um, and then introduced a standalone bill that sought to prevent um, Medicaid and other state-funded health insurance plans from covering uh, trans-related health care. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm totally blindsided by this. And then I sort of hit myself in the forehead and went, oh, except that Pennsylvania has banned Medicaid from covering abortion care since 1985, right? Like mm-hmm. 32 years later, I should have seen this coming. We all should have seen this coming, but I think um that's both a part of the work that our movements have to do to build bridges and build connections, but it's also a piece of this question that you started with, Andy, about building political power, right? Um, We can't be in our own silos just talking about abortion, just talking about criminal legal reform, right? Um, What happens when abortion is banned um, in the states? Uh, pregnant people are criminalized. Pregnant people are surveilled. Pregnant people are arrested um, when they don't give birth to a full-term healthy baby. There are questions about, um, did they use drugs? Did they uh, do something to end the pregnancy? Um, and so I, so many of the movement spaces that we um, are part of at the ACLU of Pennsylvania, I think, are at this really critical crossroads where we need to be not just in conversation with each other, but coming together to build political power because this is all connected and uh, folks on the other side of the political divide have known that for a long time and have worked really effectively um, to get us to this crisis point. We're talking about elections and the impact of elected officials. Julie, there are other things that people can do right now to shore up abortion access in Pennsylvania and around the country. What are some of those? So if you are worried about folks not being able to get an abortion next week or next month or even next year, um, Part of the answer to that concern is coming together to help provide community care. These are long-term political fights um, to regain the rights that we just lost on Friday. And um, I was on a call on Friday with the executive director of ACLU National, Anthony Romero, um, who said uh, something like, you know, I may not still be around, but the ACLU will definitely still be around when we get these damned rights back and we are going to be a part of that fight. So I thought that was really inspiring to think about um, the devastating in some way to think about how long this work might take, but also really inspiring to think about how can I be part of an organization that is going to be here for the long haul. Um, At the same time, in the short term, we've got to come together as friends and neighbors and family members to make sure that folks are able to get the care they need. And right now, that looks like supporting clinics in our communities, Um, not just uh, Planned Parenthoods, who um, everybody knows about and often turns to in moments like this, but also our independent clinics. Um, We have some real powerhouse independent clinics here in Pennsylvania. Um, We have Allegheny Reproductive Health Center. Uh, We have Allentown Women's Center. We have the women's centers in Philadelphia and Delaware counties um, who uh, provide a huge number of 
um, serve a huge number of patients each year. Um, and they are going to be needing our support. They're all going to be seeing patients from out of state, not just in Pittsburgh. There are some cheap direct flights to Philly from um, cities in states where bans have already taken effect. Um, so we'll be seeing folks um, on both sides of the state. Um, and then, of course, we have abortion funds, which came into being um, after Medicaid, um, after the 1985 ban on Medicaid coverage of abortion care in Pennsylvania. And these funds have historically helped uh, folks who are insured through Medicaid cover the cost of their care. And now we're stepping up to cover transportation costs, childcare costs, lodging costs um, for folks who might be traveling long distances to receive care. So um, we have the Abortion Liberation Fund of Pennsylvania that serves the eastern part of the state and Western Pennsylvania Fund for Choice that serves the western part of the state. And so finding out what the needs are at these clinics, what the needs are at these abortion funds, and donating your time and resources is going to be essential to um, filling the gap while we continue this hard work of um, sh shifting the political landscape. Um, so that's where I direct folks immediately. And then, uh, Sarah, you were talking about the importance of state constitutions in securing um, some of these rights in the absence of federal protections. And unfortunately, um, that's a something that's at risk here as well. So um, again, our opponents have been smart and savvy and diligent, and they uh, saw the writing on the wall that if Roe falls, the only thing that's preventing Pennsylvania from enacting outright abortion bans is potentially protections in our state constitution. Um, and that's doubly the case in a situation where um, you have an anti-choice state legislature and a, a pro-abortion access governor um, who has been vetoing efforts to restrict abortion for a number of years. So we are um, facing the prospect of a constitutional amendment in Pennsylvania uh, that would explicitly state that the constitution does not guarantee the right to abortion care or the right to funding for abortion care. Um, and the way that that would work, um, and is, it's already in motion, is that uh, the legislature has to pass um, identical bills in two consecutive sessions through both chambers, the state house and the state senate. Um, but what's unique about this situation is that these bills don't go to the governor for uh, their signature, uh, they go to the ballot. Um, it is a question that is put to voters. Do you want to amend the Pennsylvania Constitution in this way? And um, historically, Pennsylvania voters have said yes. Um, surely our elected officials have thought this through and have uh, sought public input and have really carefully considered whether we should amend our Constitution, the sacred document in this way. So yes, I will trust their judgment and uh, vote yes on this question. And uh, that's often not the reality of how the process works and um, is certainly that something that we would be opposing um, if, it, if this appears on the ballot. So I think um, that in addition to the sort of go vote advice that you're hearing from everyone that feels insufficient as we think about 
um, other types of political engagement that are going to be important, uh, certainly opposing efforts to amend the Pennsylvania state constitution, uh, are, it's going to be critical um, that if that were um, to pass both chambers and wind up on the ballot and voters were to give it a green light, uh, Sarah, you can probably say more, but uh, that would absolutely tie our hands um, in terms of bringing legal challenges under the state constitution to any abortion restrictions or bans that would pass here um, and could have more wide-ranging implications even to contraception and fertility treatments. Um, it's The way it's written is very broad and very scary. And I don't want to get too far afield here, but it is worth noting and putting a pin in the fact that the General Assembly now has basically started legislating by constitutional amendment. And it's not just in um, abortion access, but also in voting rights and other areas that uh, and issues that we care about from a civil liberties perspective. Um, they've basically quit on trying to work with the governor uh, and now want to use the Constitution as a place to pass what normally would be statutes. And it's just not, as you said, Julie, it's not the way uh, the constitution is intended to be used. Uh, but, but your comments actually provide a good segue to what I want to ask Sarah as well. You know, it, it feels to me like the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court far from settled the abortion question with this case, they've actually opened up years of legal fights and created an incredible amount of instability. So Sarah, what do you anticipate will be some of the future legal actions we'll be seeing, whether it's in civil lawsuits or the criminal space? Yeah, so, you know, really the central point of the Dobbs decision is that the government need only show that it has a rational basis for any law that it passes um, to protect fetal life, right? And so almost anything will count as a rational basis. Um, and so, you know, so no, we no longer sort of have the backstop of the Constitution to argue against, you know, laws that um, would, you know, criminalize things that people do while they're pregnant that might um, result in harm to the fetus, however, you know, speculative that harm is. Like, so I definitely think you could see some additional efforts to um, criminalize pregnancy. Um, you know, the, the court didn't say anything about whether laws have to provide an exception for the life of the pregnant person, the health of the pregnant person, whether there has to be an exception for rape or for incest. Um, so you have, you know, situations where, you know, perhaps, you know, a, a woman's undergoing chemotherapy and gets pregnant, right? Those two things may be completely inconsistent. And who who takes precedent? I mean, the way that the Dobbs decision is written, I, you know, I think the court would rule that the the life of the fetus takes precedent um, because they totally ignored any interests of the pregnant person in their decision. Um, but, you know, and it's, and, so it's, and it's not just those sort of like kind of obvious examples, like, you know, the exceptions that are required under the law or, you know, whether people are going to be prosecuted for things they do while pregnant, but also this could certainly have an impact on states that pass laws protecting embryos in the course of in vitro fertilization. It can make it much harder for couples who want to use in vitro fertilization. Um, it could have an impact on people who want to use things like intrauterine insemination, because sometimes that produces multiple pregnancies that are not sustainable. And then what do you do in that situation, right? It makes it a lot harder for people to, to take that risk, right? Um, in terms of using that form of um, assisted reproduction. Um, and it can certainly have an impact on con contraceptive 
access. You know, we've already seen efforts to go after, you know, the, the morning after pill, right, or um, IUDs, because there's some arguments um, that they might prevent implantation of a fertilized embryo. So, um, so yes, I think there's just so, I mean, there's so much potential for litigation. You know, the court majority went to great pains to say, we're going to take, you know, take this, get rid of all the controversy surrounding this and people can just vote. But they, you know, it just opened up a can of worms, <laughs> this decision, because there's just so many consequences that could flow. And if you look at, at even Judge Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, he even points out, he's like, well, I wouldn't, you know, in my opinion, you wouldn't be able to criminalize people who go to a different state to get an abortion because we have a right to interstate travel. Well, I don't, that's not obvious at all. He's the only one who said it. He's the only one, nobody joined his concurring opinion. Um, and he said the same thing for, you know, some other aspects of pregnancy um, that are just not believable. You know, I just think there's, we're going to see a, a ton of efforts to criminalize pregnant people, a ton of efforts to, you know, prevent people even from engaging in different types of family planning, whether to, you know, try to get pregnant or to try not to get pregnant on both sides, you're going to see efforts to restrict that. Um, and, and, you know, and I think it's, you know, for, you know, as Julie was saying, like abortion is healthcare, you know, and even for people who want to be pregnant, but may have a serious health emergency, they may go to the hospital and find a doctor who's not willing to treat them, right? And you're going to see people die because of this ruling. I asked you that question because over the last few days, the more I read, the more complicated I realize this is. We start getting into issues of how state courts uh, cooperate with each other, how state law enforcement agencies cooperate with each other, um, whether or not states that have abortion access will ban their law enforcement agencies from participating with states that don't have access. I mean, it's just the three of us talked um, before we started recording about the importance of DAs and DA elections. Like this is like, there are so many interlocking pieces here that it is just, as you said, Sarah, they've just opened up a huge can of worms. If I can add one thing that has really resonated with me um, as I've been talking to folks in the past weeks and months is something a, a staff member from our national office has said, which is that this is a mass criminalization event, right? Um, we, for a long time, we've seen different identities criminalized. Um, we've seen uh, increased surveillance of people in certain communities, people with certain identities, and you are now adding pregnant people into that complex layering of um, which individuals and which communities are criminalized. They're surveilled both by police, but also by our child protective services, right? Um, they may be investigated by child protective services. They may be arrested. Um, and Andy, as you were pointing out, there's these in interstate questions that come up, but also interjurisdictional questions between, you know, Philadelphia County and Bucks County, for instance, um, because there's going to be a lot of uh, local entities, law enforcement and child protective services that may wind up being drawn into um, some of these controversies and conversations that really that shouldn't be uh, in the public sphere at all, should really be um, within families and between families and medical providers. And the other thing that strikes me, 
is just how divorced from um, scientific and medical knowledge this decision is. And we've seen this uh, in the abortion access space for years, right? We see lawmakers with zero medical training trying to ban um, certain types of abortion procedures that a doctor might deem are the safest procedure for a particular person in a particular situation. They don't invite doctors to come to the hearings. They don't consult with them. They don't talk to people who are or have been pregnant. Um, they act like they are medical experts. And again, I think this decision invites a whole lot of people with zero medical training to say, huh, you know, was that a miscarriage or maybe did you try to induce an abortion? Let's start an investigation. Um, and these, these folks, even if it were appropriate to start this investigation, which I would argue it's not, these folks don't have the medical expertise to do it, don't have this, the scientific background to, um, to even understand what the impact, for instance, of a certain type of drug use during pregnancy might be. Um, and so that's another can of worms, um, as you said, Sarah, that I think has been opened here um, that is just going to be uh, cause a lot of chaos and a lot of devastation for individuals and families. Yeah. And, you know, I think we talk about illegal, we talk about drug use, a lot of people think of illegal drug use, but there's a, there's a lot more illegal drugs <laughs> that doctors do prescribe to pregnant women that can cause a har harm to um, their pregnancies. But it's a decision between the pregnant person and their doctor about what the best course of action is. And this ruling just invites the government to get in the middle of that relationship and tell pregnant women what they can do and cannot do when they're pregnant. Well, as I said at the beginning, this was not the conversation we wanted to be having. Nevertheless, uh, here we are having it. Um, and as you said, Julie, the ACLU is here for it. Um, I hope that we get back and get back those rights while the three of us are still working at it. I hope we don't have to hand it off to the next generation. Um, but regardless, we'll, we're, we're back to work. And I wanted to quote one of our other national colleagues um, who said, the only thing harder than continuing is stopping. Um, so we're, we're, we're in it and we're in it to win it. And I'm glad uh, the three of us and our colleagues can all be working together on this. So thank you both for your insights. Thanks, Andy. That's Sarah Rose and Julie Zapes of ACLU PA. For more ACLU insights about the fallout of the Dobbs decision, check out the latest episode of National ACLU's podcast, At Liberty, which is available on all of the various podcast apps. Also in the show notes, you'll find two links. One is to become an abortion care champion with ACLU PA. That's for our supporters who want additional information about ways to defend abortion access in Pennsylvania. And the second link is to an action alert where you can send an email to your state senator asking them to oppose Senate Bill 956 of the, the bill that would amend the Pennsylvania Constitution to deny the right to abortion. The audio editor of Speaking Freely is Freddie Foulet. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Schuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free.